Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM, let's create. Any sort of careerist goals I have are related to trying to make sure that when I hand them off to their adult life, that as smooth a transition as possible. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> while at the same time, if I was just a single person who wasn't married and didn't have any kids, I would just sort of ride this United Shade show out until the, the wheels fell off because it's a good living for me to have. But because of my kids, I'm like, okay, well, I have to sort of be thinking four or five steps ahead. But then on top of that, I have to make sure that the work that I'm trying to get and trying to produce is still something that, makes me feel like I'm doing good work in the world. You know what I mean? That was W. Kamau Bell. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. safe and sound wherever you are right now and i want to thank you again at the top of this episode for making us part of your week at the beginning of this crisis everyone on the talk easy team came together and talked about the kind of person they would like to hear in this precarious scary moment people that are experts like dr ashish Jha and noam chomsky People good for the heart like Juliette Lewis and Elizabeth Gilbert and Jane Fonda. People to inspire action like Dolores Huerta and Naomi Klein. All of these folks have come on the show or are about to come on the show. And then it dawned on me that W. Kamau Bell, a socio-political comedian who's the host of this great show on CNN called United Shades of America, is exactly the kind of person 
I want to hear in this moment. Kamau has been on this show twice before. In fact, he was the second guest to appear on Talk Easy almost exactly four years to the date. Uh, I've known him for about that time, maybe four or five years. And he's the only person to come on Talk Easy three times. And there's a reason for this. Aside from being one of the funniest people I know, which he totally is, he has this quality about him that is kind of singular. He can make you crack up in one moment and then, on a dime, turn serious and political and passionate. That's exactly what makes United Shades of America such a compelling program. He's willing to go to these unexpected places in conversation with anyone that's willing to have them. And so I'm very grateful to keep having these conversations with Kamau over the years. I hope this episode makes you laugh, makes you a little bit upset, uh, makes you happy. I imagine we will do this again down the line. Uh, but until then, here is round three with W. Kamau Bell. Kamau Bell, welcome back. You are uh, the running champion of this podcast. A third <laughs> appearance. There's there's no there's no one else who's made it here three times. How how do you feel? I feel good. I mean, I was here very close to the beginning, right? I I did it in your apartment, I think. We did the second episode of the show together. You were the first person to do an in-person podcast, and you came to like the shitty office that I had in San Francisco. Oh, that's funny. That's how shitty an office it was. I thought it was an apartment. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was, by the way, you really thought it was an apartment? It was a little box. I mean, I just, this is my memory of like years ago. I could, I, <laughs> I've had several kids since then, sir. So it's a, <laughs> I'm not saying it wasn't a special experience, but I don't have it exactly memorized in my mind. No, yeah. I, it was above um, a weed dispensary. It was in the mission, right? Yeah, it was in the mission. I got, okay, I got that part. Right. Your memory is pretty good. And I remember uh, 10 minutes before we were supposed to tape, you text me and you're like, hey, so it smells like weed. I'm getting contact high out here. Can you let me in? <laughs> seems like something I would have said, maybe. <laughs> God, do you remember? That's like when we could laugh about things. Like you were you were doing like a Denzel Washington podcast. Remember like, oh, yeah. do you remember when yeah. you used to experience joy? Oh, I, I mean, I think I still experience joy. It's just a lot of it is processed through pain, which is how humor began in the first place. I liked it when we could just talk about man on fire versus out of time like <laughs> yeah <laughs> although there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the book of eli i keep going like yeah they need a prequel to that where it's just people in their homes going this is going to get back to normal right <laughs> so back in 2016 uh we spoke before donald trump was elected and uh <laughs> of donald trump you said he is the nagging cough that has turned into aids <laughs> yes, that was a, that's in my special. That's in my, my Showtime special. He's the nagging cough that has turned into full-blown AIDS. I had no idea uh, that he would go, I can do you one better, and actually exacerbate a whole new uh, pandemic that nobody had heard of. So, yeah, he went, he, went, he went a step beyond. Well, you even said in that interview, he's like a virus. <laughs> he's getting everybody else sick, but it's not hurting him. <laughs> wow. Look at me. I don't get enough credit. <laughs> I'm underrated. <laughs> 
totally <laughs> prophetic almost. right there. 2016. Yeah. 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 <sighs> I mean, you know, I, I, I don't take any pleasure in being right. I mean, I, I feel like this. I think people in the, in the, in the Bay Area, specifically the East Bay, I, I feel like, especially the, like the activist people, they were like, oh, like sort of happily like, oh, yeah, this is going to get awful. Like sort of very clear on the fact that like, oh, this is going to be awful. Yeah, oh, yeah, get ready. It's going to be awful. Like no sort of like, maybe it'll be okay. Like, oh, yeah, we're going all the way down in the hole. And I feel like I was the one who was always like the cheery, like, it's not going to be that bad, right? So when I hear those things you quote, I'm like, oh, yeah, I definitely knew. But, you know, I definitely felt like I was the cheery, the cheery one amongst my like activist radical friends. What were their gloomy predictions like? I think they just knew that like, you know, I mean, first of all, you're talking to people who, and you know, where they're already like capitalism is already trying to to break all of us, <laughs> like so, like that. That's just a so a lot of the things that exist in America are already awful for oppressed people, uh, black and brown folk, people who aren't millionaires or multi billionaires or whatever. Those things are always gonna are always gonna be hard for you. But then you put like a guy like that in charge, it's just going to turn up the heat on all those factors that are already hard. So I think that's what they were aware of is like. The things that have been hard are about to get a lot harder, especially because he's not even like a calculating James Bond villain, you know? He's just like flipping switches the way I was flipping switches on GarageBand before we got on this. When I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm just keep pressing stuff. <laughs> I've gone back and forth on that point. Are any of his moves planned, or is it all shooting in the dark? I think he has a general direction he's trying to get to, which is all based on his own ego and selfishness. So I think that in that sense, things are planned. But I think that the thing that makes it seem more planned is there's people around him who are sort of like, you know, it's like trying to get the rat to the end of the maze. Like, the cheese is over there. (laughs) 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 So I think in that sense, like, you have people like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and, you know, uh, any, you know, Stephen Miller, uh, you know, who are sort of like there to sort of like, you know, he probably still takes phone calls from Steve Bannon. So those people are like sort of like pointing him in the direction of the cheese because that helps them all. But I think he's probably like, uh, you know, it's like the old the old school Looney Tunes Tasmanian devil. When this crisis started, there was a conversation uh, between me and everyone who works on this show. And it was about, like, should we continue podcasting? And if so, who would we have on? And the first people that came to mind that I thought were actually... Uh, available and interested and could speak to the moment uh, with the people we've been having on. We had Beto or work. We had uh, Noam Chomsky last week. We have Elizabeth Gilbert coming on Gladwell. And I also immediately thought of you and it is why I, I reached out. That's quite a dentist waiting room. Dennis, like a, that's quite a doctor's waiting room. The people you just mentioned. I, I don't, I actually think all of us would get along if we were all in that dentist waiting room. I don't think there's like one asshole in there. But I thought of you because you have a way, both on Twitter, but also in your show on CNN, you know, United Shades of America, you have this way of making sense of madness. I'm curious, how are you making sense of all this? I mean, it's funny. I think a lot of the ways in which I have to deal with this uh, is because I'm a parent. Uh, you know, I think when we met, I had, did I have one or two kids? You had two kids. I had, I had two. Okay, it's hard to remember. I had two, but one was brand new, if I if I remember. So yeah, so I think that like now I have three, 
one of whom the youngest is who's not even two years old yet. So I've got an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old, which are very different stages of emotional and intellectual and even motor skills development. So like right now, we're here talking, and I'm very aware as soon as this is done and I walk out of my wife's closet <laughs> where I'm doing all my recording and go back into the house, it's game time. You know what I mean? So like before I got on with you or as I was trying to figure out the recording, I was also like negotiating with an Instacart delivery driver about like, <laughs> you know, no, 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 that, do they have the other oat milk? No, no, I think oat milk, not soy milk, you know, through text while also trying to be like, thank you, you know. So I'm very aware of the, of the, like, it's not like, like, you know, I have a lot of friends who are childless and good for you all who are like, oh, so many books and I've started farming again, <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, it really is like being on the deck of like a, of like, you know, some sort of like, I don't know. I don't, it's, 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 you wake up and it's like, and go. And at the end of the day, you're like, I can't stay awake anymore. I have to go to sleep. But then you wake up and go. So really a lot of it is just about like trying to make sure that the people in my immediate group, and that includes my mom who lives nearby, are all fine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then there's another part of it that is like also using whatever platform that I've been given to try to figure out ways to share information or pull people in the right direction or fundraise for different things or highlight things where I do feel like a responsibility to do that and also to do it in a way that I do it, which is try to be a little bit funny sometimes, although sometimes it's just about uh, cyberbullying the Surgeon General. (laughs) (laughs) Do your kids know what's happening? Yeah. I mean, the five-year-old, eight-year-old, a thousand percent do. One, because the news is sort of like a thing in our house and they're aware of it. So since my five-year-old was three, she's been like able to sort of understand who Donald Trump was and why it was not working out for America. And <laughs> so, they, so they're aware of that. And then I just like the idea know, of her being like, Dad, I know why this guy is not working out for this country. Yeah, no, she's <laughs> she's very clear. You know what? Because she's also watched cartoons about bullying. So it's very clear. These are, He has all the hallmarks of every bully on every kid's cartoon. So it's, uh, you know, and he also... She's at the age where she's really learning how to be, how to share and how to cooperate. And it's very clear he does not know how to share or cooperate. So, plus he's so over the top. He's like every kid's character that is the over the top bully. Like he reads the same way as a, as a bully from a kid's TV show or a bully from a kid's cartoon. Right. Except at the end of all those episodes, the bully learns some kind of moral lesson. Yeah. And I think, in some sense, I think that's good for kids too to learn. Like, yeah, they don't always learn that. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Daniel Tiger was able to figure it out, but Trump is – we may not be able to figure out Trump. We just may have to, like, end run around him at some point. But. Unfortunately, life does not always cut to commercial break and have a nice ending. No, no, no. It cuts to commercial break. When you come back, it's right where you left it. We have a few questions uh, from people online, uh, topical stuff. So why don't we start with that? Pete Manning asks, uh, should the press corps continue to ask the same question at briefings until the president answers the question? This is one of the times I feel super glad I'm not a journalist because I don't you I think we'd all like to think we'd be like, I'm out of order. You're out of order. The whole thing is out of order. You know? <laughs> like, I think that we'd like to think we'd flip a chair and throw a shoe and walk out. Have you ever done that in your life? 
Uh, let me see. Have I ever? I've definitely stormed out. Have I ever flipped a chair? No, only as a child. <laughs> like I've never. Like that's the thing. I don't think any. Honestly, most of us haven't done that because we have. We respect the social contract, and so I think we think it's weird when somebody does not. Now, Donald Trump does not respect the social contract. I don't. I don't know what those press corps people should do. I also think I don't know because I would never have taken that job. You know what yeah, I mean? Well, I mean, but, all, but to, to be fair, a lot of those people who have that job had it during the Obama presidency. Yes. They had it during the Bush presidency. They had it when presidents actually had press briefings. We just forget that he just canceled them. Like, yeah. he canceled them like a Netflix show. Like, he's like, nah, I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> I'm not doing that no more. It's been successful, but I've had enough of it. <laughs> I mean, I think for the most part, those press briefings were never supposed to be a thing where they had to sort of figure out an adversary, you know? Like, I think there's definitely been times when reporters have stood up. Like, But I think now, I think what's great is you're seeing reporters like Yamichi Alcindor and uh, I think it's Paula Reed from CBS and Jim Acosta is known for this too, but I'm going to put him aside because he's seeing it. I'm saying, you're seeing other reporters be like, you sort of can see them go, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like, <laughs> Brian Karam's another one of those guys. And I think they're starting to realize we cannot expect this to return to, that he's going to suddenly go, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know what I've been thinking. Let me answer this like an adult. And I think that you're starting to see the press people have to figure it out, but they didn't get that job necessarily because they wanted to deal with a person like Trump. So they, I mean, you might be better off sending a bunch of stand-up comics in that room. <laughs> like, like Lewis Black might be the best political reporter this country has unknowingly right now. If Lewis Black would ever say yes to that job, oh, yeah. oh my yeah. God, <laughs> that yeah. would be a godsend. I think the problem is we realize now that he's not ever going to play by any sense of rules or logic. He's only going to do the thing that sort of feels good to him in the moment, whether it makes sense or not. And we realize, and I think this is the thing that people from my friends from the East Bay my, that I talked about earlier, we realized for a long time, you can't trust the people around him to suddenly go, okay, that's enough, Donald, stop. You just, like this, it's just, you, you know, as much as we love Dr. Fauci, he's very clearly said, I'm going to hug this science lane as hard as possible and deal with some of this indignity because the science lane is so important to me. But he's not going to ever push Trump out of the way. He's in uh, an impossible situation uh, where he has to speak to public health and also vaguely manage someone's tiny insecure ego sorry large insecure ego but he's also in a good spot i think because he actually doesn't need the job the same way some of those sycophants need the job yeah he doesn't like fauci has a job and he's doing this because he's because it's for the public good and as a friend of mine pointed out like fauci was leading the hiv epidemic back in the day back in the 80s yeah he was no so i think that like in some sense it's like He's dealt with some shit. <laughs> so, like, this is like, you know, like, I mean, I'm old enough to remember that. Like, that seemed like that was never going to get better at the time. And it, they have not figured out a cure, but they certainly figured out a lot of medications that have helped people. I mean, you know, Reagan wasn't Trump, but he wasn't exactly like, yeah, let's really figure out this HIV thing. No, I mean, it wasn't until Rock Hudson called him. You know, th there's that study that people only comprehend something is a real threat. They don't realize it's a real threat until it happens to either them or someone they know. And that's the thing that's frustrating is I think there's a, a large percentage of this country who is basically disengaged from politics. And I understand because I was when I was young, I was like that. So who the president is 
they don't really see that as mattering. And Obama did this too, turned the presidency into a celebrity thing. So Obama started it. Uh, and now Trump is sort of capitalizing on it. So this is all just a TV show, and Trump is entertaining to them. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, he's entertaining them because he plays into a lot of things they believe, deep state, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so because this pandemic hit the urban areas first, which Trump, even though he's from the urban areas, has sort of like feeds into their thing about hating the urban areas. They have this thing that they're like, well, I've seen people on Twitter. I don't know anybody with COVID-19. I don't, you know, and it's to me, it's like, why would you need to? But it's a thing. It's a thing. If it doesn't affect me, it's not. It's just a TV show. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, and I, you know, there's a big percentage of America whose empathy button is broken, <laughs> and and I think that one of the things I try to do with United Shades is try to like reboot people's empathy buttons, and also give people who do have the empathy button some knowledge that they can share. Trump has no empathy, and he plays on people's ability to not empathize with something they can't directly see or touch. This is from Ali Vine. It's a two-part question. Um, first part. He wants your comments on uh, the Surgeon General regarding black people. Um, I, I have here Surgeon General Jerome Adams. This is from the New York Times. When asked about the disparity between the rate at which black Americans are contracting COVID-19 as opposed to other racial groups, Adams said African Americans and Latinos should avoid alcohol, drugs, and tobacco. Do it for your abuela. Do it for your granddaddy. <laughs> Do it for your big mama. Do it it for your pop pop. I can barely get through this. He said, we need you to understand, especially in communities of color, we need you to step up and stop the spread so that we can protect those who are most vulnerable. (laughs) Oh, my God. I remember it was like like weeks ago when we were at the very beginning of this, but where people who who pay attention are like, yuh-oh. You know, we we're at the yo place for those for early adopters. Mm-hmm. And I consider myself an early adopter. I was at, you know, so and he was on Jake Tapper's show and I didn't even know who he was. And it, he comes up as the Surgeon General. And I was like, oh, the Surgeon General is a black guy. Well, good job, sir. Like, you know, like, I was like, I didn't know. I didn't. He was, I'm sure, appointed by Trump. But whatever. He's a black guy. I'm happy for him. And that's when he said, talking about the president. And whether or not he was going to get COVID-19, he said he would, the president is 73 years old and he's healthier than I am and he sleeps four hours a night. And he and he just went off on this tangent about how the president was healthier than he is. Now, Jerome Adams is like 44, 45 and has several pictures on the Internet of him jogging. So yeah, let me say, if he's healthier than you are, you really got to figure some stuff out. Yeah, that says more about your health than it does about his health. It's like, <laughs> like it's I feel like you're deeply ill then if he's healthier than you. It's not a praise of his health. It's a admission about your own health. So, and he got, and I sort of tweeted, I was like, and I, I think I, did I tweet at him at that point? I don't remember if I did, but I was just like, dude, <laughs> like, 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 just talk. You're a doctor. You don't have to kiss his ass. All you have to do is stick to the facts of medicine. And at that point, I didn't know anything about him. So I'm like, you're a, you're a medical doctor. Just be a medical doctor. You're in the one position in the Trump administration where you can just be like, here's the facts. I'll see you later. And he responded to me and was like, I was making a bad joke. It wasn't a good joke. Uh, also, instead of maybe you could just share the facts of how not to spread COVID-19 and basically instead of talking to me. And so I said, okay, I'll do that, and I'll share whatever facts you want me to share. Also, maybe you can stop kissing your boss's ass and and just stick to the facts. Oh, Twitter. 
<laughs> and I'm not a Twitter beefer, but I feel like if you're truly beefing up with like this, to me, this is beefing up. He's the Surgeon General of the United States. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm not like I'm not like going after you know a bot or somebody with three followers. <laughs> and also, I really did think it's important for you to be honest about the facts in medicine. You know. So then he was doing the thing with the NAACP where there's like a conference call, and I got an email about it because I'm on those lists, and I just was like, you know, okay, good for him. And when the conference call started at like seven o'clock, I got a phone call from the NAACP. Mm. I was like, are they calling me? And I didn't answer because I got three kids and it was seven o'clock on a Sunday. I'm deep in parent mode. So I was like, I'm not, I was like, this is weird. They're calling me. Then this article comes out and it's all about how he apparently on the phone call told a story about like, you know, every, you know, the black story that every black person has access to. I was born on a river. You know, like just about how he grew up poor and blah, 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 and hell and da, 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 and how he's doing the best he can. And then the Georgian general tagged me in it just to be like, look at me. I was born in a river. And I was just like, nah, man. And so since then, when he says things that are ridiculous, like that thing that you just read, I call him out for it. And for a while he would respond to me, but he doesn't respond anymore. I just think the thing that is so tragic about him. So let's just look at that one statement about Big Daddy. That's the kind of thing you can only get away with if you have a connection with the people you're talking to. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Like, literally, Tyler Perry could put up a video where he was like, call your big daddy, call your grandmama, call your Aunt Bess, whatever. And and the black folks who like Tyler Perry would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe he knew the name of my grandmother. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like they would be like, like, you know, Oprah could do that. And black people would be like, I have such a long-term investment in Oprah, I feel that she actually does know me. So when she mm-hmm. goes through these colloquial phrases, even if it's not the name of my grandmammy, mammy, whatever it is, I understand what she's getting to. People with high approval ratings. People with high approval ra- and also a long-term investment in the community. You know what I mean? Like like Steph Curry could probably do that in Oakland. He could put up a video. <laughs> like, say, like, call your grandmammy, you know. So this guy, nobody in the black community for the most part, I'm not nobody, but overwhelmingly the black community had not heard of him until he went on Jake Tapper and said, Trump is healthier than me. And then basically most of the stuff that came out of his mouth after that was either way behind the news cycle where he was saying things like he should have been saying weeks ago or just like wrong or just like or just like clearly trying to make room for his. And he never like called out the president for talking about when the president was prescribing drugs to people. He never called out the president for that. He was one of the last people to say wear a mask. So it's like his science isn't right. And then his like, so when he gets to call your grandmammy and your Uncle Ted and your bubble, people are like, what are you doing? And it's clear, and this is the part that like, as I start to get into my preacher mode, that some white person in the Trump administration came to him and said, talk to your people, you know, like you do with your, your, your abuela, say that stuff. Like he was doing that because it didn't come off natural from him. <laughs> Definitely talking about abuelas. Um, he's not Latino, so I'm really confused by that. Um, well, he came out and said later that his, uh, apparently, I don't know, he, you know, he's got a Puerto Rican something or other in his family, which is fine. But again, if he had said, my brother-in-law is Puerto Rican and he called his abuela, that's different. Mm -hmm. If he'd come out and said, you should do like I did. I just called my granddaddy and my big mama. Then we go, okay, you're talking about your own experience. Mm-hmm. But the way he did it is this like sort of this broad brush of black and brownness. <laughs> and again, it does not have that deep reservoir of love and respect in the black community. And, and whatever he could have built up, he has spent on kissing Trump's butt. 
it just it comes off comical. And the thing that's funny, and this is as a performer, when he does it, if you watch him do it, he's not comfortable. It's like, <laughs> I was like, I've seen flop sweats before. I'm a comedian. I've had them before. It's clearly a dude who's like, I am out of my depth. And I think the whole position is probably out of his depth. He was like the, whatever the Surgeon General equivalent of that is in Indiana. And Mike Pence brought him in. And so I think this is clearly just like, oh, Jesus, how am I going to do this? <laughs> and this is the thing I last hit him up for was he, as he talked about how black people were susceptible for COVID-19, and he talked about because we have pre-existing health risks, which is true, he never connected to because racism. He just sort of act, it's sort of the way he came across, it sounded like black people just like to have high blood pressure. <laughs> they just, they, they just, black people just really enjoy not living near grocery stores. That's just what we like. We like not being able to afford health care. <laughs> like it's a choice on the menu. Yeah, like it's just that's how I don't know why we chose that stuff. And so to me, to be a black man in that position and to be able to go to speak on stage for five minutes about black people's susceptibility to a to COVID-19 and why and to sort of and not ever get to. Also, it all starts with the transatlantic slave trade. <laughs> like it's just like, like you're, you have really revealed yourself to not be the person that we want for the job. So we have uh, another question uh, from the same person. He wanted your thoughts on the NASCAR driver who used the N-word <laughs> and was fired. Now, I Googled it this morning, and there was a headline from uh, Business Insider Today. A prominent race journal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant it as race is in racism, but also racing. It's, it's got, there's, the puns make themselves. Yeah, well, the, the headline said, NASCAR driver Kyle Larson has been fired from his race team. And I don't know if my brain was like defrosting, but I read that and I was like, he has a race team? Then how did they let him say the N-word publicly? And then I figured it out. <laughs> so do we care about this? Does this matter? I mean, what do we feel? So the, apparently NASCAR drivers were doing like a virtual race online, like some sort of like they all got into their video game race cars and raced each other. So that's also <laughs> sort of like a thing that only happened because of COVID-19. And... He was, and you know, as people play video games, talk to each other while they're playing video games. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, he thought he was on a private line, and he was actually talking to a friend, and he actually had his whole his line wide open to the world, and he dropped. He like basically like <laughs> he did the thing that a lot of you white people do. I'm not saying you, but he called his friend the N word out of out of friendliness. You know what I mean? I'm not saying you. You know, not me. What are you talking about? I'm not saying you. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. I'm not saying you. I'm just saying that there are white people in the world, and you know some of them, and you've met them, and you've been around them, who drop the N-bomb on each other the way the black people do on each other. But for the most part, they know to do it in private, because otherwise you're going to get fired. <laughs> By the way, the, the, the whole I thought I wasn't speaking publicly defense is a terrible defense. Saying, oh, I didn't know I was being recorded is yes. not a good excuse. In fact, it makes you think so... Is this what you're saying all the time? Yeah, no, it's what else are you doing? So, and you know, to me, it's, it's hilarious in that I'm sure NASCAR is awash in white guys dropping the M-bomb on each other. And I'm not going to say a percentage, but I'm just sure because a lot of those dudes grew up listening to rap music and they think they're cool and they're, they have white privilege. So I'm sure they're all like sort of looking at each other like, Man, I can't believe that nigga got fired. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like, so that's the thing I think is funny is like, he's probably like, I got fired, but I don't even use it as much as Tommy does. 
So, welcome to the 21st century. Glad you could join us. Uh, you can't you can't be that careless anymore. And also, if you're a really good NASCAR driver, you'll find another job. I want to go back to when you were starting to find your voice because I stumbled upon this article um, in 1995 after you had dropped out from college. Your father, uh, Walter Bell, offers you a job. And he says, uh, it's a job where you would have to move back to Mobile and join the family insurance <laughs> business. He said, I offered him a salary. I told him he could make a certain amount of monies. You said, thank you very much, Dad, but this is what I want to do. <laughs> do you remember that call? That's funny. I, I do remember that call. That's a very, because I remember getting off that call like, I guess I'm in now. Like, it was very much like a, I knew I was, I was really disappointing him. I mean, I think he sits with it now, but he was super shocked that I, he thought he was throwing me a lifeline because I was calling him like, I'm going up at a coffee shop tonight and I did five minutes last night and I bombed. You know, he thought he was really throw like saving me. And I was like, no, thank you. And so I, I got off that call knowing I had really disappointed him, but also never regretting the decision to not do it. Even if I didn't make the career I made, I, I knew that was not the right decision for me. That episode on United Shades of America about Mobile, Alabama is is one of my favorites. There's so much in there that, that feels tethered both to you and this moment that we're in. Um, I was just thinking about your ongoing relationship with your dad and how that must have changed over the last 20 years as your career has taken all its twists and turns. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You can, you can sort of shorten the window. Over the last 10 years is when the real things my career really, like, kicked in to a different level. And so, and he got to, like, I mean, you know, as much as he loves United Shades, he was living in New York at the time that I was doing my first show, Totally Biased, mm -hmm. and Chris Rock was producing it. And Chris Rock was around for 99% of the shows. And so my dad would show up at the set and just hang out with Chris Rock. <laughs> for like, you know, for like two or three hours a day. So when he would sh come up to the set, he would see everybody like, uh, come out, do you need another uh, sugar-free Red Bull or would you like some tea? And he would see like all this stuff with my name on it and he would just see all this like crew running around. Everybody's like, oh, everybody's like saying, oh, Kamau's the best, whatever they were saying, you know, whatever. He felt like the president of showbiz for about a year. Mm -hmm. And so once he saw that I could get there, like, it's funny, he was the least worried. He was way less worried than I was when the show got canceled that I thought my career was over, and I really did. He was like, you got one show, you got another one. And I was just like, Dad, that's not exactly how showbiz works. And yet he felt like if you could get this far, you can keep going. Basically, I think my dad was like, if you could turn down that good insurance gig that I gave you <laughs> and get here, you can get somewhere else. There's some context to this because, you know, for a long time, your father lived in Alabama uh, on a street called Bell Road. It was a shack. And up until he was about 35, he wanted to be a photographer, a poet. All of that has to play into how he feels about you actualizing kind of the creative dreams that he had growing up. I mean, I do think that he, as much as he would like to sort of 
you know, I think he really does like the man he's built himself into, and he really is like a very accomplished and has college degrees and an MBA and, you know, and is like and CEO of company. You know, he's done a lot of things in business. I think he can't help but go, yeah, but also I was a dude writing poetry, listening to John Coltrane albums, trying to be a photographer and, and, and doing some activism. So I think he's he knows that's in him, although at some point he he chose a different path. He felt like he wasn't ever going to be successful in that stuff. And I think really financial success was important to him. And so I think he was worried for me. He's like, yeah, you can go be a comic and go perform in coffee shops. And, uh, you know, <laughs> if that's what you want to do or you can make money. And I think the thing he has seen is that as financial success has come to me and I'm still doing basically the same stuff I was doing just at different levels. I think he's very proud of that. I mean, putting him on United Shades, I think was like this sort of defining moment for him. Because he's a big deal in Mobile, Alabama, where he lives. But now people come up to him and go, how's your son doing? I saw his show. I saw you on his show. And it just, it's sort of the final level of like the place where he's a big deal. People think I'm a big deal. Hmm. Does that bruise his ego? No, not at all. He's <laughs> not, not even a little bit because it's that thing where my accomplishments are his, I think, as far as he's concerned. <laughs> so I'm not even... I think he, I mean, you know, we have pretend talks about it, but no, it's not. He couldn't be happier about the direction it's going. And he's also the guy who's like, you should be working harder. So like, I think that he's not like, <laughs> he doesn't feel like we won. You know, we've known each other for a while now. And there's a part of season three where you return to your grandmother's house, Gladys. And the house has been boarded up. And... I get the sense that you hadn't visited in a long time, or if you had, something about that visit seemed to strike a real chord. Yeah, I, had, I hadn't visited for a long time because there had been no reason. I'd been to Mobile a lot, but it's on the other side of town. Uh, it's like I, there would have been no reason to go over there. The last time I had been there had been like, uh, like a year or so after she had died and they had my dad still owned the house or my dad and his siblings owned the house and they had rented the house out to somebody else and I'd walked in and looked around and I was like oh shit like I could like I started to break down then because it was like a bunch of strangers with their feet up in my grandmother's house <laughs> and they had like torn a wall down and I was like what are you doing that's not how that you know and so at that point I'd had an emotional experience so I sort of knew and so this was and that was I was probably at that point in my my mid-20s, so I hadn't been there for 15, close to 20 years. So when I went back that day, and I knew we were going to film there, as soon as we were, we were just traveling by to like sort of park the van and set up, and as soon as we pulled up, I was like, oh, shit, and I, and I, and I was like, stop the car, and I hopped out of the car and just sort of like started dry heaving, <laughs> like just really like, whoo, because it was just in such disrepair, like it, it was just, you know, nobody was living in it, it weeds were growing all over it. And, you know, I'd spent a, I spent every summer there as a kid and lived there for a while. And so when we pulled up, the cinematographer, his name is Patrick Higgins, who's my brother from another mother and father. Love him. He, there's another, another episode where I cry in it that I'm talking to Patrick. And I was like, Patrick, turn the cameras on. <laughs> like, he was like, I was like, I was suddenly like, turn the cameras on. I think we need to, you're going to want to film this. And so Patrick, who is an incredible human being, saw what I was going through and saw what I was holding in. And he like, sort of quickly fired up the cameras and just started talking to me. And he's like, what's going on, Kamau? And I started talking about it, and I just broke down because it was just like, you know, it's the physical representation of the fact that she's not only dead, but on some level forgotten by this neighborhood, you know? But also, at that moment, I'm sort of like flooded with memories of why she was important to me. And this is a woman who 
for a good part of my childhood, I was scared because she was a classic Southern grandmother who would whoop your, who would at least threaten to whoop your ass and sometimes pull off the shoe and whoop your ass in a very loving Southern grandma way. It would be super easy on United Shades to go, I'm going to go cry for an hour while you guys set up and I'll come back and I'll be fresh and ready to record. And it was just like, that's not the show. And that's not, that's not, that's why I'm not a journalist. That's not my version of how to make a show like this. At 47, where do you see herself and you? Uh really valuing family like you know she was like the matriarch of the family and so everybody came through and everybody like checked on her and so for me like right now with COVID-19 there's people in my life that I'm like I need to call that person just to see how they're doing you know because I'm recognizing on some level that I'm in a much more privileged position than some of my friends and family members and just want to be like hey I am right here if you need me so I think that's a part of it uh I would say what else I mean I think there's also just a a respect for older black women that I think that was probably like started with her. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a, if you're a black woman over the age of like 65 and you walk up to me in the street and say, come here, I'll be like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> like, I think that that's, you know, I've just given out a, a, a secret. Like, and I, and I'm definitely passing that down to my, to my daughters. Like we'll be out in the world. And because they're young black girls, you know, black women will see them and nod at them or, or just say hello and I will always be like, speak to them, say hello back, do not leave a black woman hanging. <laughs> so like, whereas I will not tell them to do that with white men. So <laughs> I think really respect for black women, and especially older black women. Like if an older black woman is laughing when I'm at a show, I will highlight her laugh because I feel like that's the actual, that's the most important laugh in this room is the laugh of an older black woman. Um, in that episode, your father said making a living and making a life is two different things. And when you make a living... You also want to make a life. I'm curious, when Totally Bias ends and you have that experience with with true kind of mainstream success on some level. And mainstream failure. (laughs) I was going to leave that part out. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's that's actually the most important part. The recovering from failure is the it was the I think it was the key lesson from that. So when you're recovering from failure in that moment, how, not only how did you move forward, but were you thinking about those steps of how to make both a life and a career? Well, yeah, I think the reason that we moved back to the Bay Area was about making a life. It wasn't about making a living. It felt like it was the opposite. I was running away from making a living because I was in New York. I was established. You know, we were definitely in an apartment we couldn't afford anymore. So we could have moved to a smaller place. But again, my wife was pregnant with our second kid at that point. And it was like, if we move like out to Queens where we don't know anybody and we have a second kid and we're trying to figure out life in Queens. And also we don't have anybody we can rely on that who can just sort of come be at the house and help us. Like we don't have family. Whereas in the Bay Area, my wife is like within two hours of all of her immediate family. So moving back to the Bay Area was definitely like choosing to make a life and then figure out how to make a living from there. Did you really feel like your career was in jeopardy? A thousand percent. And I say this with all the love, do this man, because I still know him and work with him. There is a, there's a comedian named Chris Spencer. Uh, who is in commercials. He's like 
writes for every comedian, every black comedian, especially the, that you know. He, Chris Spencer's probably written them at least a line. He's written for Obama. Like he's just like he he's got he's got a Rolodex that he's got everybody, and he's just a dude who everybody knows. And he uh, used to host Chocolate Sundays, I think, at the Laugh Factory in L.A. But he's like he's like a super well known and loved dude, and works and you know he's 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 if you see a commercial with a black dad in it, it might be him. Uh, <laughs> but back in the nineties. When Arsenio Hall went off the air, they were like basically like, oh, we need another black talk show because Arsenio Hall is gone and he has a whole demographic of people that we need to still make money off of, basically. And so Vibe magazine started a talk show. I think it was just called Vibe. And the host was an unknown black comedian named Chris Spencer. And I think he was the host of that show for, I mean, it was like, Let's say it was two weeks, but it wasn't six months. And then I went years without seeing him again. And what happened is they replaced him with Sinbad, and then Sinbad had the show for a while, and then the show got canceled. But I always remember Chris Spencer. <laughs> I always re- at the, like, I went along because I was like, oh, that guy, I can't wait to see him again. He was funny. And I'm not saying he wasn't working. He was de- I don't know what he was doing, but he definitely did not go roll from that show into another TV show. Right. Whereas, like, it, a part of Conan O'Brien's legend is NBC only had him on week-to-week contracts and he was doing horrible in the ratings and for some reason they let him keep going (laughs) so and I'm not saying Conan didn't deserve to go Conan is funny I like Conan but I think that's the difference between being white in America and being black in America Chris Spencer got his two weeks they're like moving on whereas Conan they're like I don't know we're just gonna let this guy keep going and see what happens same thing with Seinfeld the Seinfeld sitcom was not a number one hit for the first couple years. Right. It became a cult show and then grew into a number one hit. But they apparently they said NBC just wanted to hold on to him because they didn't want him to go somewhere else. His inability, and I think the industry's inability to publicly recognize why maybe they, you know, they wrote it out with Conan for a decade. It, <laughs> it wasn't an accident. No, and I think it's easy to, it's easy to forget the origin when you are surrounded by your current day you know what I mean like so I don't blame the I think but the story is more interesting to me if you tell it the way that I remember it happening in the way that I've that I heard people talk about the time that NBC was like we don't want that guy to go somewhere else so we're gonna let him do this sitcom now I think things would change now I don't think he would have got that kind of runway now because the media landscape has changed but at the, it happened and I'm saying like at the same time that's happening on NBC vibe magazine and vibe tv show and syndication is going that's enough from that guy. And so Chris Rock said that to me when I got the show, and I've said this many times. He's like, unfamous black guys never get TV shows. Unfamous white ones get them all the time, which is which I th- we can say is true. But I think <laughs> the thing is, or I can say is true, but the thing that I was like, I'd always remembered Chris Spencer even before I got my show because I was like, whatever happened to that guy? Now I've come to find out that he's he like opens for he actually opens for Chris Rock and Seinfeld, I think. So he's he's doing fine. Everybody can't have their own show. But it was just to me, it was like I didn't think that I was that somebody's going to be like, oh, you failed at a TV show. We should get you another one, and you know, so I didn't know what the next step was that was going to keep my growing family, uh, you know, above water. What did Chris Rock teach you about building a career? It's funny. I just talked to him recently, and we don't talk that often. But he said this thing to me several times, and I think the and I think I start to take it in more. He's like, you would have made it without me. I just helped you get basically get through a door that wasn't open to you is basically how he puts it. Mm. But he was like, you were working hard, you're funny, you somehow, he's like, basically like, don't give me too much credit. 
and I think at the time with Tully Buzz, like, you know, I was like, okay, I, I think I'm going to give you all the credit. And I certainly think it's, it means a lot to say this guy opened a door. Cause I think it, it encourages other people to open the doors for people. And so I think I've tried to take that and open doors for people who the door wouldn't have been open for while at the same time recognizing, don't, don't pat yourself on the back for, for two, don't give yourself too much credit for opening the door for somebody. You're, you're supposed to. I wonder how much living and working in Berkeley has shaped your perspective of what a life and career should look like. The thing I like about living in the Bay Area is that there are people here who know who I am, but it's very clear to me that they know who I am and are like, oh, that's Kamau. Like there are occasional times when people like have that sort of, that's the guy from TV. But I think I've been around in the Bay Area long enough that like people feel invested in me in a way that I really like. That is not the same in other, that would not be the same if I'd stayed in New York or stayed in, in LA. I think that like, you know, uh, being able to make a life in a place that is that is a real place with real people. And I have real, and I've known people for a long time. Like I just had a phone call last night with a guy who's a great activist and is, speaks truth to power and is somebody that I, that I like to rely on and talk to. And he was sort of reminding me, he's like, I was trying to find your, your email address. And I realized that he found like an email from 2010 when he had seen me perform at an art gallery in downtown Oakland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the art gallery is not even there anymore. It's probably a, a parking lot now. And he was just like, man, like sort of had that moment of like, you have come a long way. And also a little bit like, I appreciate the fact that I can still talk to you, <laughs> you know, like, so, and I'm just like, I appreciate the fact that you still want to talk to me, that you don't see me as somebody who like got too big or something or got a big head or something. So for me, that's why I like living out here is that I'm still just a person who I like to live in the Bay Area because I like to live here and I like to live here before all this career stuff happened. You know, you and I have been talking for five years now, if you can believe that. Yeah, it's a, whew. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a, we had a, it was a defining moment how we met. <laughs> I woke up this morning and I was like, <sighs> do we tell the story again? Is that what it was? We've never told the story publicly. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's hilarious. I didn't realize that. <laughs> so this story, um, Kamau, <laughs> K- Kamau was, was here and part of my life and a witness to something that, uh, yeah, I've not shared on the show five years ago. Jesus Christ, five years ago. Um, I can't believe it's been five years. But five years ago, I was I was a creative director at the Roxy Theater over in the Mission in San Francisco. And we were desperate to figure out interesting events that would um, bring in folks from all across the community. I mean, running an art house theater is, a, is an absolute thankless and pain in the ass of a job. Um, but, it, but, but one, I love doing, but it was so, so difficult. And... We had this idea of screening the film The Last Dragon. And I, I knew for some reason or another that you love this film, that this was a film you grew up on. And so I reached out to you, and, and much like your friend who you had a call with yesterday, you know, you responded almost immediately and was like, cool, let's do it. Let's set up the screening. Let's figure it out. So... We got together, we talked about it. Then we started to figure out how can we get Ty Mac here to San Francisco? I think he lives in New York. Uh, you had met him like six months prior or something like that. Yeah, when I had lived in New York, he is friends with somebody who worked on Totally Biased. And, you know, if you're, I, at some point, The Last Dragon had come up, like it probably does once a year for me. But, and so she was like, I know him. And I was like, you know him? Because like, he, was, he was another dude to go back to Chris Spencer. We're tying it together. He disappeared. He did The Last Dragon and then like popped up in an episode of A Different World. 
and then never was to be and like and I was like so this is this is sort of fed into my black guys dis, black guys in showbiz disappear. So you get in contact with him, we arrange for him to come. I think the theater takes care of his travel, we get his his ticket, his hotel. I mention this because the Roxy Theater is a non-for-profit, which is really just a complicated way of saying it has no money. It it, it makes no money. It <laughs> nope. it has no money. The people who work there are doing it because they love doing it. So the theater has no money. So it was a big deal for us to fly him out. We put him up. The night before the screening, I get a call from Kamau. I, I didn't answer it. I didn't see it. And you left a voicemail. And your voicemail is like, Sam, I hate to say it, but the other shoe was dropped. <laughs> Because it had gone so easily. It had all come together so quickly. Everything had gone so well. And I get that voicemail and my stomach just drops. And I call you back. And you're like, look, he really wants to be compensated for the appearance. You know, he wants to sell merch. He wants to do all these things. He feels like the theater's sold out and we're profiting off of him. Again, I think net we made like $400 like the, well, the, I, yeah. I just, I just was like, I remember when he called me, I was like, "Hey, man, I'm not making a dime. <laughs> like, I was just doing it for fun. Like, I was like, and I was happy that it came together because I was, and I was like, and I don't work for the theater, so I'm gonna put you. Because I felt bad. I was like, I, I, everything he was saying, I was like, sure, we all want to make money. Great, yeah. I, I don't know what the money is to be made. It was already sold out. Yeah. Uh, and it also, let's be clear, it was not in a, it was not like at some sort of multi-thousand seat cast. 225 seats. Out. It was 225 seats. Okay. Yeah. You remember the exact of, number. Of course. Yeah, so. I, I, it was my job for a year. It was 225 seats. You know, five of those were for staff. Ten of those for, were for you and your friends. He had some guests. I think we sold like maybe 175 tickets. You know, I have this call with him and he's like, look, I want to get paid. I tell him the situation. And he is understandable, actually. Yeah. And so the next day happens, the, the, the screening uh, is going to happen. Before the screening, we set up this meet and greet. Um, before the meet and greet, you and I and Timac, and I think my friend Ian, we go to like a Mexican restaurant. Yes, I we, have it on my Instagram. There's a picture of him with a burrito. Yeah, we have, and it's totally a fun meal and we're hanging out. And I think for you, it's like, hey, I'm kind of doing this thing with a childhood hero of mine. It's the, I'm meeting my hero. People say, don't meet your heroes, but I'm meeting my hero. Right. Well, we'll get to that. So, <laughs> so we do the meet and greet. The meet and greet goes well. A bunch of people show up. Like, and it's people from all over. There's folks from from Oakland and, and East Bay and South Bay and, and SF. And, and a blacker audience, I think, than the Roxy probably gets on your average evening. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh my God. That's an understatement. It, it was absolutely a blacker audience. And something I tried really hard to figure out was to how do we get more, you know, Mexicans and black people into the theater. And it was a real challenge. And I think that happened because of you. And so this meet and greet goes great. We show the movie. It is to date, and I tell this to everyone, one of the best experiences of watching a movie I've ever had in my life. It's Black Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> like people are like like saying the words, they're singing the songs, they're dancing, they're riffing, you know, they're they're making jokes on the joke. They're making jokes on the joke. Everyone is about two drinks in. It's perfect. Yeah. And afterward, we do this Q&A. We get on stage, it's Kamau, myself, and Ty Mac. 
and you and I ask him a bunch of questions. It goes pretty well. And then we open it up to the audience because the audience is like dying to ask questions. Yeah. And I remember, maybe you remember this better than I do, but I remember there was some question from a woman in the audience where he had like a pretty homophobic response. The thing I remember is that, first of all, this is just, you know, why people hate doing Q&As with audiences because audiences get sort of like, ah, things become a little feral. (laughs) And I felt like there was something where some question was asked and I felt like he didn't understand it the way it was asked. Yeah. And sort of his response was like, whoa, whoa, hey. <laughs> no, no, dude, you, then, you were underplaying. You totally saved it. You, you, he, he, he like bombed and you were like, let me get you out of this with a joke. Yeah, that's, I remember, I definitely remember being like, we're almost at the finish line here. Like, we don't need to work. <laughs> that's how I felt. Because I, I remember we looked at each other and we were like, oh, what the fuck is this? No, and I just remember being like, I got, and I felt like at that point, I felt like, because the whole night I had sort of been his, I'd sort of been there to like sort of lead him through. And I felt responsible in all the ways that like now he's mad he's not getting paid. Sam is like looking at me like, why'd you get me involved in this? And I felt like (laughs) I am here to jump on grenades. Like I'm here to like, this is, I'm here to, and I I will happily. And also I felt like because I wasn't, didn't have a financial stake in it, the least I could do is jump. Like it was like, I can happily jump on grenades and feel like I'm just doing what I need to do. So, uh, and it was a sold out thing and people were happy, but there was like just a couple like people's feral questions combined with his sort of like maybe like, I can't believe I'm not getting paid for this. There was just some weirdness in the air that I just felt like I had to keep jumping on grenades. You you totally did. And and I never felt any uh, kind of like ill will towards you. I, 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 I felt like we were both co-managing the best we could. Um, it, it ended up being a great event uh, until afterward it ends. <laughs> And, you know, for people who don't know, like, we try to arrange these things to be as special as possible. Yeah. And so we set up this this um, meet and greet, signing autographs, doing all this, and I, I set it on stage. And there was about 50 people yeah. waiting in line, which is way more than what it usually is. Usually it's like you got like 10 nerds, like, in a corner waiting for you. Well, I think it's also has to the fact that nobody had seen him for, since the movie had come out in 85. Like, so I think that, like, people who have been, like, waiting for, like, 30 years to talk to this guy, you know. So they've been waiting 30 years. We set up this line. We pull out this, this uh, step and repeat. We set him up on stage. It takes five minutes. And the line forms, and, and a few people start going up. And I, I'm looking at it, and things seem to be going all right. And then I notice... People would talk to him and then they would leave and they went past the line and they were like, look, he's charging you, he's charging us $20 for a photo or a signature, which I had, I obviously did not know he was going to be like charging people money. Mm -hmm. And one by one, you just saw the line disappear. You know, what, what, (laughs) what 50 turned into 35 and 35 turned into 20 and then there were like probably still 10 people who did come up and pay the 25 30 dollars there was like definitely people who were like well i have been waiting 30 years for this moment and i think the thing that i remember was and this because i now remember where i met him i met him at comic con where that's the thing right like you go meet like i remember we we went the same comic con i met him at we like my friend kevin avery from the denzel podcast the title together saw edward james almost there for battlestar galactica 
And Kevin walked up like, hi, man, fellow industry member. You're in the entertainment industry. I write for a TV show. I'm in the entertainment industry. How are you doing, sir? He sort of walked up with that energy. And Edward James was like, I'm doing great, you random stranger. And Kevin goes, can I have a photo, fellow member of the industry? And, and Edward James almost goes, of course, random stranger, $20. <laughs> <laughs> And Kevin was like, had that. So I'd seen that moment before, like, wait, what? And But Kevin was already pot committed. And so he gave him $20 for a photo with Edward James Olmos, even though he was like, I, I wasn't. And so that's time mock was coming out of is in that Comic-Con culture where it's like, yeah, it's $20 for a photo. Yeah. So I was more than pot committed. I was absolutely all in. And afterward, he is just like livid. He, he is angry. And I'll never forget this. The theater is cleared out. I'm going to the stage to talk to him. You and your wife are there. I think my literally, I think Melissa was like, I think there's one more grenade for you to jump on. <laughs> like, I think <laughs> <is> what happened. <laughs> so the conversation went like this. He's like, you should have put the step and repeat and my my table out in front of the lobby, which by the way, there was no room to even do that, even if we could do that. Um, you know, you didn't set this up right, you fucked up this whole event, you've cheated me out of money. He is truly yelling at me and and angry deeply deeply angry and frustrated and i am by the way a, a tender 21 years old <laughs> no, you you were that weird 21 but you look 35 so people didn't <laughs> <laughs> i tried to like, act, I, I tried to act 35 i don't know if i look 35 um no but you i mean you didn't look 35 but you carried yourself you de- nobody i didn't realize you were 21 until you said it and i was like oh you you definitely i mean you were also trying to be you're the creative director of this theater so you're trying to carry yourself like a full-on like of course i have this job yeah no you, which you have to do and he was just really really deeply upset and i remember you tried to calm it down because it was over the whole thing was over but i think he had had like so i was like can't we just you know basically like well that didn't work anyway like it's sort of like whatever it is it's over people had a good time but you know this is the and this is what it, to take it back earlier that i can't imagine being a dude who was in that movie and it wasn't a financial hit or like it wasn't a big box office but it was a, a movie that had long legs and every black kid who was from the ages of like 8 to 18 probably 30 maybe saw that movie and has a special place for it and everywhere he goes people are like you're the guy from that where you been? <laughs> and for whatever reason, and he did some he did some other roles, but nothing as big as that. And for whatever reason, his career did not continue along the path that you would have thought it would have, the way that it might have had for if he had he been had Conan O'Brien starred in The Last Dragon. So all of this is totally true, and I'm glad you're providing this kind of context because in the moment I was not processing Yeah, why would you? <laughs> right. I mean the, what 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 I later understood was the sort of decade-long trauma that he had and and these feelings of not totally making it and feeling a little unsatisfied and like he came up short but i'll tell you i'll never forget the screening ends you go home i say goodbye to you and melissa and time acts like well so you give me a ride back to the hotel and i was like oh my god oh my god and i was like you you want to you want me to drive you? Like you, <laughs> you want to spend more you want to spend more time with me? <laughs> it was, as you can imagine, one of the most uncomfortable car rides. It's it's dead silent. When we did speak, I think I was like, hey man, I'm really sorry about this. Again, I'm driving him in my car 
to his hotel that we paid for. Yeah. And uh, th- that was that. And then the next morning he calls me and he's like, look, I'm bumping up my flight. Like, I need to get me a new flight. And also, can you drive me to the airport? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, look, man, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, you let me know when you want to go to the airport. I'll call you an Uber. I'm, I'll cover it. I'll cover it. It's not even also, again, people don't understand this. None of this is like on the theater's dime. Like, I'm just paying for it out of my money. You're just trying to pay for this to be done. I'm, I'm paying for this to be done. And so I call this Uber up. He goes, and, and I will say, he, you know, on that call, he was vaguely apologetic, but he basically spun it as like, well, now you've no, now you know. Now this is a lesson. This is a good lesson for you. And I will give credit. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'll give credit to him. That was a learning experience. And it happened to be three months before I moved to LA. And I will say (laughs) that experience taught me so much about doing this show for four years. And now in my own life as as someone trying to make and direct movies, it did teach me a lot. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I mean, everything that he sort of did and said now make it (laughs) JLo. It definitely was a great show business lesson that you that was like a a pumice stone to your ego at that point. Was it tough for you to see a childhood hero like that? I mean, it was just you know it's the classic thing. Don't meet your heroes. I still I talked to him afterwards. I I mean if he hit me up now I'd talk to him and I understood. Here's the thing: everybody in show business felt like, wait a minute, am I being taken advantage of? And so I understood where he was coming from. The suspicion. I just was trying to be like, this is just what it was. You know, you know. So this but, is not one of those occasions. This is not yet. Nobody. This is just. Exa- <laughs> it is exactly what you see. Before we go, since we're on the subject of career and path, we're in such a unusual moment, uh, a scary moment, and I think if you have the privilege of doing so, I think many of us are taking stock of what matters, what we want in life, what we want in the future. What are those things for you? It really comes down to making my kids' path as easy as you can as a parent, just as far as, like, I want them to have access to the things they need. And while also absolutely creating a real sense of responsibility and generosity in them and gratitude. Like, those things are like, I want them to have an easy path, and I want them to also not take that for granted. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like, so my entire, like any sort of careerist goals I have are related to trying to make sure that when I hand them off to their adult life, that it's like as smooth a transition as possible. <laughs> like, you know, like <laughs> while at the same time, no. So like, I always say this, like if I was just a single person who wasn't married and didn't have any kids, I would just sort of ride this United Shade show out until the, the wheels fell off and just sort of like, because it's definitely a living that's a good living for me to have. But because of them, my kids, I'm like, okay, well, I have to sort of be thinking four or five steps ahead. But then on top of that, I have to make sure that the work that I'm trying to get and trying to produce is still something that makes me feel like I'm doing good work in the world. You know what I mean? I, I wonder... How has this presidency and this climate affected how you're a parent and what you tell your kids? I mean, I feel super glad that my kids know what's going on, that I, that I'm not trying to hide it from them or that I feel like they can't handle it. I feel super great that my kids know what coronavirus is and COVID-19 is and know that Trump is not doing a good job of it 
And I and because to me it feels like then we can sort of I can move through the house more easily than if I was like turn off the TV, turn off the TV, you know, like, uh, which we do that sometimes because sometimes the president gets pretty explicit in his press conferences. But, you know, but it, to me, it's like it, it it sort of affirms that me and Melissa are right to be as honest with our kids as we think we can be and even being more honest than we think we should be sometimes because they will also let you know when they've had enough. So I think I'm glad to be able to have these conversations with my kids in an honest way and not feel like I have to protect them from the truth of the world all the time. Are you finding any way to be hopeful about our future, especially in an election year? I mean, I do tend to have an operating system that says things over a long timeline, things move in a more progressive and inclusive direction in American history. Uh, you know, and maybe even the world, but certainly in American history, if you go back where we started to where we are now. But I don't believe that that necessarily doesn't mean there aren't hiccups and and two steps back for one step forward. And right now it feels like we're very much in a two steps back place right now. But it doesn't mean we can't get out of this. But I also really think it's important to accept the fact that we may not take steps forward for a few more years. At You know, that it's not like once we get through COVID, you know, I think it's a very real thing that Trump is the president again, you know. And it's also a very real thing that, like, you know, the Harvard scientists just recently said that we should probably be indoors until 2022. You know, so, you know, what? having said that, Dr. Sanjay Gupta said he he hears there might be a vaccine by the spring. So I'm taking in all the information. <laughs> none, of, none of it from the Surgeon General. Harvard and Sanjay Gupta. Four more years. I think it's so I think that we have to accept that reality. And then the thing that, I, that gives me hope is that. It's on us as individuals to do everything we can to make that four years better because we cannot rely on our federal government. Even if Joe Biden does win, we can't just go, whoo, all right, Joe, you take it from here. I'm going to go back to uh, to uh, working on myself, to, <laughs> to paraphrase Mark Maron. I didn't see that reference coming. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I'm, always gotta, I'm always good for a Maron reference. But uh, so, yeah, I think that it's on us. And so, like, I just did this thing, Mass for the People, with Pastor Michael McBride here, from who's in Berkeley, has a church in Berkeley, where he wanted me to help him raise a million dollars for Mass for black and brown folks and poor folks who are struggling right now to not to get, be protected during this COVID-19. And in that process, Jack from Twitter was, like, announced that he was giving a billion dollars of his money to, COVID, to, to fight COVID-19. And I was like, huh. Jack from Twitter follows me. I don't know him, but maybe I'll just ask him to give money to Pastor McBride. And he did. And he announced he's giving him a million dollars. Like So, like, <laughs> I think because of my dad, I don't like asking anybody for a dollar if I can help it. But it was like this moment of, like, Kamau, are you who you say you are? And as much as you might feel embarrassed or or or, or feel weird about asking a billionaire for money, it's for people who need it, and you may be the only path. And not that I, I'm not giving myself credit. It's the same thing. Like, I was a conduit to make this happen, and then Pastor McBride was the one who actually proved, got it across the finish line. But for me, it's like that's how we get through this, is that we all have to sort of figure out ways to, as I say, be the Surgeon General you want to see in the world. You have to figure out ways to improve your community and not just sort of think about yourself in this moment. And that's the only way we get through this, through whatever the next four years are, whether it's with Trump or without him. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I just want to thank you for very often not thinking about yourself. And I can say that both as someone who's known you for five years and has seen it in action and someone who's been following 
all the good work that you do. So I, I really, I thank you for all that. I mean, you know, the thing that I was trying to do with you in Timok back in the day, just trying to jump on some grenades. <laughs> you were just trying to do it. If, if I have the privilege to be able to take a grenade shot, I'll take that grenade shot. And, you know, so that's what I'm still trying to do. I owe you a, a, a grenade shot. So let me know when I can do that for you. And I will. Yeah, it's like the Godfather. One day <laughs> I'll come to you for a favor. But until then, consider this a gift on uh, COVID-19's birthday. Kamal Bell, thank you very much. Thank you. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Kelly Rafferty and W. Kamal Bell. To learn more about Kamal, be sure to visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com. On that site, you'll find a back catalog of some of our most recent episodes with folks like Noam Chomsky, Better O'Rourke, Naomi Klein, Dr. Ashish Jha, Juliette Lewis, Sam Waterston, Allison Pill, Morgan Parker, and Haley Bennett. You can also find and subscribe to this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. You can also drop us a line via email at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. And if you're looking for a way to help us out, uh, you can consider making a donation at TalkEasyPod.com slash donate. Or you can just share this show with a friend online, with a family member, anyone that you think may be interested in what we're doing here week after week. As always, this podcast would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janik Sobravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. Music by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our editors are Andre Lin and Kat Owen. Our social media is by Deja Washington. Our engineer is Tim Moore, and we tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Well, not this week. This week is in my closet. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Jane Fonda. Until then, have a safe week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 